Well, good morning, and if I haven't met you yet, my name is met you yet. My name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's good to be worshiping with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, we are starting a, a new series through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses today. So Luke one, one through four, and let me go ahead and read it. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us uh, today, O Lord, um, that wherever we come from, whatever things on our hearts, Lord, we pray that your spirit would take my humble words, my simple words, and breathe them uh, a spiritual life into those words so that they would transform us and make us new in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would leave every one of us when we leave here looking more like Christ than when we came in through the power of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever received any news that changed your life? Uh, maybe you can think of something in the, the past. Maybe it was a piece of good news. Uh, you got a new job that you'd been waiting for. Uh, maybe it was a positive pregnancy test. Maybe it was an acceptance letter to a school you were longing to go to. Maybe it was a marriage proposal. It could be bad news. You get a phone call letting you know someone you've loved has died. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a miscarriage. It could be a call from the doctor with bad news. Well, here's some other news that affects all of our lives that maybe we don't think about as news, and that is the weather report. Right? The weather report is a piece of news that actually has a big impact on what you do and how you feel. Uh, who here uh, felt when you saw, how did you feel last Tuesday when you saw that it was going to be over 70 degrees? <laughs> we probably all rejoiced, right? Yeah, we were happy. And then how did you feel when you saw that on last Thursday we had a good chance of snow? You lost all of that joy, right? The news of the weather impacts you. It says, hey, I'm going to wear shorts today. I'm going to go for a run and not wear eight layers of clothing. I'm going to go take the kids out to the park or just bask in the sun. The news, whether it's the news of the weather or news of some event, it points to some external reality that has a real impact on your life. It can be a big impact or a little impact, but it has an impact. And we're beginning a new series through the Gospel of Luke, and I've called it The King Has Come. The King Has Come. And what I want us to see in this series is that the Gospel of Luke, and really all of the Gospels, are like news reports uh, that have cosmic implications. I, I think so often in our individualistic culture, we can tend to think of the news of Jesus or the death and resurrection of Jesus as something that impacts me, and it does, but we shouldn't forget that it is news that changes the rest of the universe. Yes, it provides comfort for you, 
but it provides comfort for you because of an external reality. Christ has died and Christ has risen again. It's like the weather. Right? The weather report doesn't make you feel better because you think it is 70 degrees, or we say the weather doesn't make you feel better because you think it is 70 degrees, or you feel like it's 70 degrees in your heart, no matter what it actually is outside, but because actually when you step out at 1 p.m., you feel the warmth of the air. It is 70 degrees, and you bask in its warmth. And it's the same with the news of Jesus. It isn't something that just changes your heart. It's not just something that affects you or makes you feel better. It is cosmic news that has real-world implications for every corner of the universe, and that includes your life. I think we tend to live with more of a hypothetical Jesus. We say we believe in Jesus. We might pray to Jesus. But when it comes to making a tangible impact on your day-to-day -day life, most of us have more, are more impacted by the weather report than we are about the news of Jesus. And I want that to change in my life. I hope you do too. And as we work through this series called The King Has Come, hopefully we will start to see what it means that Jesus actually is the King. The King has come. And that changes everything. And so what I want you to really just ask yourself this morning is this one question. Has the news of Jesus changed your life? Has the news of Jesus changed your life? And not just in maybe a hypothetical way, but in a real way, in a day-to-day -day way, in the way that you face everything. And so I've divided this sermon into four points. Usually, like we do when we start a new book, I like to take the first sermon to kind of give you some background and some themes to the book to kind of help us launch. And so this sermon has four points that really dive into kind of the four different aspects of how the Gospel of Luke came together. And we see that in the first four verses. So here is what we're going to look at. First, what happened. Second, the eyewitnesses. Third, other narratives, and then fourth, an orderly account. So first, what happened? Now, there tends to be a lot of confusion and misinformation when it comes to understanding how did we get our Bibles. Now, when you're a kid, you don't think about it too much, right? A kid think, oh, a Bible just comes from Amazon, like everything else, and you don't put any thought into, well, how did we actually get these books, or how did it get to us from a book that was written thousands of years ago? But you get, as you get older, though, um, you start to ask some of those questions. And sometimes you can learn that the process of how we got the Bibles we have today wasn't as clear-cut or simple as you thought it was from when you were growing up as a kid. And, and sometimes people use that to poke holes in your faith, to undermine your faith. But understanding the process of how we got our Bibles can help us understand why each gospel is different without it maybe shattering our faith, help us understand even some of the messiness and yet how God was in control of every step of the process. And behind each gospel is what is mentioned in the last part of verse 1, an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So the first thing is very obvious. There were actual things that happened that were considered worthy enough to make the news. 
And then not just worthy enough to make the five o'clock news, but notice what Luke here writes. He said, these things have been fulfilled among us. Well, what does it mean for something to be fulfilled? It means there was something that you were waiting on that was fulfilled. Your dreams were fulfilled or your, your wishes were fulfilled. And that word fulfilled is used in Matthew one twenty two as well. All of this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so what we see here is that the Gospels are not just any news reports, but they're actually news reports that show that Jesus' life actually fulfilled something that was long anticipated. The gospel writers weren't just looking to, you know, we've got the five o'clock news coming up, we've got to fill that space with something. No, this is news that they had been waiting for that has worldwide significance. And Jesus' life fulfilled something. What? Well, the things that were written in the Old Testament. If you've ever met with me, which a number of you have, to work through the gospel of John, I usually start off by drawing this diagram that I think is helpful to understand all of Scripture. And it starts with something like a big funnel like this. And I say everything in the Old Testament is funneling into this one point, of which is Jesus. And then at the center of that funnel, or the bottom of that funnel, are the Gospels, right, which give us four perspectives on Jesus' life and how he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. And then I draw a, another funnel that the point starts at Jesus, and it works its way out to bigger and bigger, and I say that the rest of the New Testament is then the authors of the New Testament explaining and exploring the impact of Jesus having fulfilled all things. So what does that mean for us? One example that is helpful is to think about the temple. And in the Old Testament, God's people first had uh, what was called the tabernacle. It was a, a fancy tent temple that they could carry around through the desert. And that tent temple, the tabernacle, then was built into an actual building, the real temple. And that temple was God's address here on earth. It was the place where God would live and dwell with his people, the place where his people could meet with God and where they would experience his presence. And then, though, the Gospel of John starts off by saying, the Word became flesh, talking about Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. And that word for dwelling is the same Greek word used to describe the tabernacle or to denote the tabernacle. So we could say something that the, the Gospel of John, the author of John, is saying that Jesus came down to earth and became a temple among us. And then in the book of Acts, there's this early worship service of Christians, and we're told the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven, and then many of the words that are used to describe a temple dedication service in the Old Testament are then used to describe these early Christians as they're worshiping God at Pentecost. And what we see is that there is now a new temple dedication happening, and it's the people of God. Why? Because Christ, who is the living temple, is united to his people so that God's people have now become the temple here on earth, that we are God's address on earth. We are God's home on earth. 
And see, you can see how that theme of the temple flows into Jesus, Jesus fulfills it, and then out of that, we are living in the implications of that. And that is why the news of Jesus should have a greater impact on your life than the weather report. Because if you are actually a representative of God's presence here on earth, how would that not change everything you do and what you think about? The universe has been waiting for ages for things that were fulfilled in Christ. Christ's coming marks the beginning of the end, and we are living in that time. Well, this brings us to the second point, the eyewitnesses. The next step of the development of these Gospels was that there were people that were eyewitnesses to these things that Jesus did. And they gave testimony. They explained. They told the stories of what they saw Jesus do. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And it's helpful to remember that back then they didn't have all the same types of evidence that we have today. There's no cell phone records or GPS tracking or camera systems that you can check. So one of the most reliable forms of evidence back then was eyewitness testimony. And the word used for eyewitness is a specific word to describe somebody who saw these things, somebody who was actually there. And one of the interesting marks about eyewitness testimony in the Gospels is the frequent use of names in the Gospels. Now, this is the part that we don't like, right? Because it's, it's hard to pronounce all these ancient names, and we kind of fumble over them, right? We're like, why are there all these names in here? Well, because those names are telling us who the eyewitnesses were. There's this really thick book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, and he dives into this into great detail. Right? One thing he does in his book is he looks at what were the best practices back in Jesus' time for compiling history together. Because we often tend to think, oh, the people back then, they just played fast and loose with the facts. They didn't care about history like we think about it today. And yet what he shows is that when he looks at the writings of other historians that lived around those same centuries as Jesus, people like Thucydides or Josephus or Tacitus and others, he says that people believed history, true history, could only be written within the lifetime of those events that you're writing about. And then he shows that Greco-Roman historians said an ideal witness was someone who had participated in the events and could understand and interpret their significance. And then he shows that the gospel writers were writing their gospels in accordance with these commonly accepted practices for writing history back in Jesus' day. And so this is why we have these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And maybe you've heard that there are other gospels out there, and you wonder, well, why isn't that gospel in part of our Bibles, or why isn't this gospel included? There's the gospel of Thomas, or the infancy gospel of James. And there's a number of reasons why We wouldn't consider those other Gospels authoritative, but one is they don't meet that standard for history that was used back even in that day when Jesus was alive. It needed to be written within the living memory of these events, and all of those other Gospels came significantly later than the Gospels that we have in our Bibles. 
the Gospels we have are the earliest records of Jesus' life. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Now, you'll notice in the Gospels, sometimes people are named, and other times people aren't named. It just says, you know, there is a man or there is a woman. And, and Bauckham argues that those characters who are named in the stories, and we'll see a lot of this as we work through Luke, were the primary eyewitnesses for the stories that are being written about in these accounts, the stories to which their name is attached. So it's, it's like with a news story, right? If you open the paper or go on KSL and, and check the news, right, and the reporter will often name his sources. He'll say, John Doe from West Jordan said dot, 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 right? And if you wanted to learn more about it, you could go and try to find this person in West Jordan and say, hey, tell me more about what you saw or tell me more about what you experienced. And this is much more powerful than just an anonymous source. And so those names that we see in the Gospels, which don't mean much to us, they're just kind of hard to pronounce sometimes, would have been alive when these Gospels were written. And that's why the Gospels tell us little details, like it's Simon from Cyrene, so that you could go and find that exact Simon that is written about in that Gospel story and interview him. Hey, tell me about this. Did you actually see this? Did this thing really happen? And the Gospels were written while these eyewitnesses were living. And again, we're so far removed, it's easy to forget about this. They weren't written after all of these eyewitnesses were conveniently dead or conveniently on a vacation in the Bahamas and can't be reached for further comment, right? They were publicly available and named so that a person in the second century could have taken these Gospels or an orderly form of them and found these people and asked them for themselves, did these things really happen? Which is exactly what Luke did. Now, Bauckham takes another step and he lists all of the names of people that are discovered in all the Gospels and Acts as well. And then he takes all these other historical accounts uh, from other Jewish writings and census records and all kinds of things from around Jesus' time and he puts them into a big database, and he analyzes all of their names. And what he discovers is that Jews in Palestine used names that were different from Jews in other parts of the region, whether in Egypt or in, the, um, in, in uh, Europe or areas like that. And when it came to naming their kids, the Jews of Palestine were a bit like Utahns. We've got our own set of names and our own set of spellings, right? And you know, you can take a good guess if someone is from Utah, if they have a certain name. And it was the same for the Jews back in Palestine. And what he shows in this analysis is there's a very strong correlation between the specific names that show up in the Gospels with names of people that lived in those specific regions, these weren't made-up names. They weren't names that someone filled in because they thought, oh, that sounds like a Jewish name. Well, no, that's a Jewish name from a Jew living in Egypt, not in Palestine. Right? And hopefully as you see these things, that you see that there's lots of good reasons for accepting our Gospels. I realize this is way more kind of heady than what we normally do in a, a sermon, but hopefully it helps give us a good foundation before we jump into Luke. Well, let's move to the third step, right? There were first the events that took place, then there were a bunch of eyewitnesses that saw these events, and then the third step is suddenly there became to be stories that got passed down from people and early writings of, hey, let me write this down, this thing that I saw about Jesus. 
And that's what we have in verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account. So that before the Gospels came to the final form that we have them in our Bibles, they were often compilations of different stories. And some of the Gospels were written earlier than others. And what the Gospel writers did is they had heard all of these stories. They were like investigative reporters that I'm going to go track down the sources for these stories. I'm going to listen to this story. And then they combine them all together to create an account of Jesus' life. And this is one of the reasons why we see certain overlaps between some of the Gospels. So the Gospel of Mark was written first. Uh, the Gospel of John was written last. And somewhere in the middle is Luke and Matthew. And one of the reasons why the Gospel of John is so different than the rest is John kind of looked and said, oh, well, there's already these other Gospels. I don't need to repeat everything they said. So he felt like he had the freedom to write a Gospel from a very different perspective than our other ones. But 90% of the stories in the Gospel of Mark show up in Matthew and Luke, which has caused some people to wonder, well, did they copy Mark? Uh, Probably. That Luke says here, there were many other accounts that I researched. And even some of this dependence shows up in very specific details. In Mark 1, verse 3, there's a quote from Isaiah where it says, A voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, this is a quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah 40. But if you were to turn to Isaiah 40, in a Greek translation, or even I think in our English Bibles, we would see that it says, make straight paths for our God. But Mark takes that quote and takes out our God and replaces it with him. Now, where it gets really interesting then is Matthew and Luke have those same quotations. They, from Isaiah 40, but they make the same change in the Gospel of Mark not following the original quotation in Isaiah chapter 40. And it seems this is probably likely because Mark is one of these other sources or accounts that Luke mentions in the beginning of his gospel. They were using him to help compile their story. Now, as I said, this is more technical than most sermons, but hopefully it helps give you that foundation for why we believe what we believe, why you don't have to just turn off your brain to believe in the authenticity of scriptures. Now, there's many similarities between Mark and Matthew and Luke, but there's also some differences. And again, this shouldn't alarm us or, or make you say, oh, well, which one is true? Like, uh, just like when you look at, say, uh, Lone Peak, which we can actually see right out here today, from, if you look at Lone Peak from here, but then you drive over to Park City and look at Lone Peak, it's gonna look like a completely different mountain. Or if you go down to Utah County and look up at Lone Peak, it looks altogether different, right? And they, are they all describing different mountains? Are they lying or making things up? No. They're describing one grand mountain from three different perspectives, right? The mountain is too big to just have one person capture it all. And in a similar way, the Gospels are like a four-dimensional perspective of Jesus, where each one of those writers is standing from a different vantage point to go and describe the one who fulfilled all things. All right, this takes us to then to our fourth point, an orderly account. 
In verse 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is generally uh, described or accepted as the author of this gospel. As, as some of you know, the titles of our gospels were added after the gospels were written. They came later. One of the reasons why we think Luke wrote this gospel is because Luke is fairly clearly the author of the book of Acts. And if you turn to Acts chapter 1, listen to this. In, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So you'll notice it was written to the same Theophilus, and he refers to his former book, which from everything we can tell is the Gospel of Luke. So that links those two together. What do we know about Luke? We know that Luke was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. In Philemon, Paul calls Luke one of his fellow co-laborers. We know that Luke traveled with Paul on one of his trips to Jerusalem, and this is significant because there in Jerusalem would have been many of those eyewitnesses that Luke would have wanted to have interviewed as he compiled his account. He also then could have gone and visited personally many of those holy sites and places in Jerusalem where these stories took place as he's trying to understand what happened. In Colossians, Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician. And we see evidence of this uh, Luke's profession in his writing. In the Gospels, probably many of you know, there's lots of encounters with sick people. And other Gospel writers use kind of generic terms to describe what they see in this person who's ailing. But Luke uses more specific terms. Like, for instance, he describes one person as having a great fever. Now, we just read over that. But when you look at the medical terminology used in the first century that people classified, physicians classified fevers as either great or small. And Luke is using the medical terminology of his day and age to describe the various conditions he's seen people. It's like when my wife, uh, Lisa, who's a nurse practitioner, uses fancy words to describe what our kids are suffering with, right? And she says something, and says, I think our kids have norovirus. I'm like, what in the world is that? Well, it's a fancy term for diarrhea and a stomach bug, right? Luke uses medical terms to this, of the day to describe what he sees. And that should give us even extra credence to the miracles of Jesus. Right? Luke, as a physician, would have been less likely to have been tricked by a false recovery or a fake sickness. He was looking at these things through the eyes of a medical professional. An early copy of the Gospel of Luke has this introduction before it. It says, Luke was an Antiochian of Syria, a physician by profession. He was a disciple of the apostles and later accompanied Paul. He served the Lord without distraction, having neither wife nor children. And at the age of 84, he fell asleep, full of the Holy Spirit. And then, Lastly, what we see is that Luke wrote this book uh, and Acts to Theophilus. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, but it was fairly common back then for a wealthy benefactor to help finance you writing this book, and then you would dedicate the book to him, even though it was meant for a wider audience. 
But we could also say that Theophilus may have been an alias. Uh, quite literally, in Greek, Theophilus means a lover of God. And maybe this is where the book connects to us. We could say this book was written to a lover of God. And that's you. And why was this written, book written to you? Verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Like I said, this sermon is way more kind of academic than normal. But I want to give us this background so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That the resurrection of Jesus and his life will have a greater impact on you than on the morning news. Has the news of Jesus changed your life? What news this week are you worried about? or anticipating or eager for? What news did you receive last week that's still casting its shadow over you? What news is controlling your life, or your feelings, or your thoughts? Now, those things are real. They have an impact. They can hurt really, really bad sometimes. But what I want us to see is that in light of the news of Jesus, you can call whatever you face light and momentary because Jesus is king and his rule and reign is forever. And that means in the scope of history, things will only get better because Jesus is king and he is making all things new and that affects you. Right? Our king has come. This shifts the balance of power. He has guaranteed the end. He has established his kingdom. And so whatever it is you face, brothers and sisters, this week, will you face it with the certainty of Jesus is still king? Will whatever shakes you not be able to shake you to your foundation because at your foundation you believe Jesus is king and he will take care of me? He will outlast whatever weighs me down. He has conquered death itself, and he is coming again to make all things new and all sad things untrue. And that's what I want you and me to have a certainty of, that the reality of Jesus would make a bigger impact in your life than anything else. And so the rest of the book of Luke, which we're going to be here for a while, is going to be looking at who Jesus is. What does his kingdom look like? And what does that mean for us as his kingdom people living as ambassadors in this world, proclaiming the news that the king has come? Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us that certainty, Lord. Because probably when we look at our lives, I know for me at least, I so often live like Jesus really isn't alive. I let fear capture my mind. I let doubt and uncertainties um, pull me all over the place. I long for things here. I want to be satisfied with things I can get right now. And yet, Lord, all that stuff is like dust slipping through our fingers. Lord, give us a certainty that Jesus is alive. Help us to live with the knowledge that he is in charge of everything. He is the true king. No one can take us down. And we pray that we would live then as his kingdom people, that we would live in this dark and dreary world as a light and a beacon of hope to those 
who so often can only see darkness and pain and suffering. Help us to live like Jesus really is alive. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.